Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So last week, we walked through um, uh, chapters 40, 41, and half of 42 in Isaiah, and we started wrestling with this uh, subject that Isaiah introduces in 42 of the servant, the servant. Now, we had talked about the servant earlier in Isaiah. We talked about this concept of a Messiah, this concept that um, everybody in leadership was a complete mess, and God had a plan to fix all of that. Well, Isaiah is writing um, from chapter 40 on to the rest of the book. He's writing to an audience that won't be born for another hundred years. He's writing to an audience that will be in exile in Babylon, and what he's saying to them is take comfort. Take comfort in the fact that your God has not forgotten you. He is going to set you free. You're going to return home. Um, You're not going to be exiles forever. You're going to rebuild. Um, And once you start rebuilding, out of that uh, rebuilding of the culture and the family and getting your homes back, a servant is going to arrive. And Isaiah 42 tells us that one of the things that will mark his arrival is that he will be the guy who will be opening blind eyes. And that is an important part. There's kind of two main components to what we're looking at today. The first being the idea that this servant has the power to open blind eyes and the idea that this servant was not the first servant. That there was another servant who came first and was unfaithful. It was the nation Israel. And the servant who comes who we know is Jesus and he's gonna open blind eyes is gonna open the blind eyes of Israel, and the Gentiles. So those are kind of the two concepts we're looking at today in Isaiah. But the idea of opening blind eyes is, um, it's kind of an interesting one because when we talk about blind eyes, there's two components to it from the scriptural perspective. There is the actual opening of blind eyes. And we see the servant, Jesus, doing this in the New Testament. We see him spitting into the dirt and forming little mud and wiping into the eyes of a man and he gets sight. There's this actual prophetic fulfillment that people with blind eyes will see again. But there's also this other component that what Jesus is doing in his ministry is he's opening the blind eyes in a spiritual sense, um, in a mental sense of people who just, they can't see the truth. And we see this when um, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4.4, when he talks about the, the idea that the God of this world has the ability to blind the minds of unbelievers. That there is a way of seeing the world that convinces you that you can see clearly when you're not actually seeing clearly. That the kingdom of darkness, Satan, sin, all of the, the, the components of darkness in this world have a way of numbing or blinding your eyes to seeing the truth. Even to the point that when you hear it from the mouth of Jesus, you can't sometimes, you, 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 
some people, they just can't grasp it. And the reason why Paul is saying is because their minds have been blind. And it's this kind of blindness that we're looking at in Isaiah 42. It's not necessarily just the opening of eyes. It's this mind blindness. It's this heart blindness that when the Lord shows up and speaks truth, even to his own people, his own people say, I think you got it wrong. So there's this component of blindness we're gonna um, uh, examine today. And then there's this other component that we're gonna get into right in 42 and verse 18. And that is the idea that there wasn't, uh, that this coming servant wasn't the first servant. The other servant that came before Jesus was the nation of Israel. And the prophet Isaiah refers to this servant regularly in the text we're gonna read in just a moment. And he calls Israel God's servant. He calls them God's blind servant. And the reason why he does this, and just a little background so you understand what we're gonna read in a moment. When the nation, well the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt, they cried out to God and God heard their cry and he sent Moses and they were freed to go out into the wilderness and come to the foot of this mountain where they would experience a visitation from the Lord. And the Lord shows up and you're familiar with this, the 10 commandments and all this and the fire comes down on the mountain. That moment is pivotal in the life of the nation of Israel because it was that moment that they became a nation. Up until that point, they were just a bunch of slaves. But the moment they came to the mountain, God said, you are now a nation because I say you are a nation. And that's unique because every nation in the history of the world that has ever been became a nation because a bunch of people got together and said, you know what, let's make a flag. Let's make a treaty. Let's make some rules that we all agree to, to live by and then let's give ourselves a name and we'll elect some people or, or maybe we'll just kind of whoever has the biggest sword, he'll rule. But that's how nations in the world have always been run except for Israel. Israel is the only nation that God has said you are now a nation because I have said you are a nation and I will give you the laws to live by. Then we look at this and we're like, okay, well that's neat but like, what's the purpose of it? Why did God do that? Well, if you look through the Old Testament, it becomes clear as you start reading, and I'm not citing any specific scriptures because it's kind of the entirety of the book, that God's purpose for Israel was to be the ambassadors for God's righteousness and his law in the world. And in giving them a land, and allowing them to build a temple and giving them instructions on worship and a law, what God was saying to na this nation, Israel, the servant, is your responsibility is to demonstrate to the world my goodness and my love and invite the world to come and worship me. That was the purpose in God's plan for Israel that they would be a lighthouse in a dark world. Come and see Yahweh. He is the only real, true God. Follow his ways, come and learn his ways. Come and learn the way he loves things. Come and love what he loves and give up the stuff that you had and, and, and see the value of following his ways. The problem is, Israel got into the land, they started building, and then they started looking around at all the other nations and the way they operated. And they saw things like, well, they've got kings. 
why don't we have kings? And they started crying out to God, well, give us a king. God's like, no, no, you got a king, I'm your king. And they say, no, no, we want a king like every other nation. All right, that's what you want, I'm gonna give it to you, but understand, they're gonna take advantage of you. So they got a king, and then pretty soon, they're looking around the other nations like, man, we've got one center of worship, but all these other nations, man, they've got like hundreds of places of worship. There's places of worship in their home. All you gotta do is go down to your local idol maker and get some kind of little carved something and put it in your house, and then you don't have to do the hard work of going to the temple and making a sacrifice. You just walk into the other room and you just kind of rub something's belly and you just kind of tell it what you want and then boom, it's like magic. The problem is that these little gods that the nations had formed were all in their own image. And that's the, the fundamental issue here. Mankind loves remaking God in our own image so he looks more like us. The problem is that's not what God, Yahweh, asks for. He asks for us to be conformed into his image. We're changing to, to, to model what he's asking us to model, not the other way around. But the nation of Israel, they weren't interested in that. They loved what the other nations were doing. And so what they started doing was they started giving themselves other idols and they started adopting other foreign worship practices and eventually they got to a place where they weren't the servant of God anymore. They were a servant of themselves. They were slaves to this world. They became filled with um, just hearts of, of being coveted and, and they were essentially blind. The servant of God in the world became blind. So that is the idea we're gonna pick up as we get into Isaiah 42. So if you have your Bibles, go to Isaiah 42, verse 18. We're gonna pick up where we left off last week. <clears throat> verse 18 says, Hear you deaf and look you blind <clears throat> that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as a servant of the Lord? Who in the whole world is as blind as my servant? It's one thing for the world to be blind, but it's something else for the people of God who've been given his law to steward to be blind. He says, excuse me, verse 20, he sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. That was the Lord's plan. He was pleased in giving this task to the servant to magnify his law across the land, but they didn't do it. And now, verse 22, this people, they're plundered and looted they are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons, and they have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the, thing, for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whose ways they would not walk and in whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. 
It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Now I want you to read this with the mind of a Jewish exile in Babylon. When this was written, they still had their lands, but a hundred years in the future, there's an exile sitting in Babylon and he's a slave and he's sitting here reading Isaiah 42 and he's asking himself, why are we here? Why is God allowing this? Was God strong enough to beat Assyria but not strong enough to beat Babylon? And Isaiah spells out the answers to those questions clearly. No, you're here, not because God wasn't strong enough to save you. You're here because of your blindness. You're in this predicament of tribulation because of your blindness. You saw, but you didn't observe. The Lord desired to magnify his law, but you didn't desire that, and therefore he gave you over to exile to, re to reveal the magnitude of your blindness. He gave you over to the nations you wanted to align with in order to expose your blindness. Now this raises some very interesting things to consider, because this means if God exposed blindness through tribulation and exile with the people of God in 700 BC, is this something that he still does today? Does God use tribulation to expose the blindness of his own people? Now we know, because we've been reading Isaiah since July 4th, that God uses tribulation to perfect the faith of his people, to forge the character of his people. But does he also use exile and tribulation to reveal the blindness that we walk around with, to reveal to us the things that we can't see about ourselves? I think the answer is yes. The reason why I think that is because Hebrews 11, 13, 1 Peter 1, 1, the writers of the New Testament speak in a way to inform us living today that we are also people living in exile. When you read the New Testament, the writers are clear. People who follow Jesus should view their lives and this world more like an exile and less like a homeland. This isn't your home. You're passing through here. And so if you're living in an exile now, then things that apply to the people of God who lived in exile previously should also in some ways apply to us. And I would make the argument that if God is good enough to bring his people in 700 BC through tribulation in 586, when Babylon came in and brought them into exile and forced them to live away from their homes for a, like 70 years, and in that period helped them understand the blindness that they were walking in, that it is possible, probable, that God is doing that in us today. And the answer to the question that you keep praying regularly, God, why is this happening to me? The answer to that question just might be because you're blind and he wants you to see. Because our God, Jesus, the servant, he really likes opening blind eyes. And sometimes the only way they can be opened is for you to be walking, put in a position where you walk through tribulation and the pressure puts you in a position where you see things from a different perspective. So, 
God uses tribulation to perfect his people. The good news is that that won't last forever. That's always the good news. That was the good news in Isaiah 42. That's also the good news for us today. God does walk his people through tribulation to help them see the depth of their blindness, but it doesn't last forever. The tribulation has an ending period to it. The trials will always end. On the other side, it's always good stuff. So go to Isaiah 43, let's go to verse one. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, because I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Now, I could preach a 10-week sermon series on that verse right there because that is rooted in identity. That gives you enough identity that you do not have to go out into the world and find it out there. You do not have to be a YouTube star or a fishing pro. You do not have to posture yourself with the best clothes and the nicest makeup and the best hair to give some image to people in the world that you are somebody. Why? Because he has already given you his name and you belong to him. That's enough. There is no identity that is better than the identity that he has already given you. So stop trying to find your hope and your joy in the identity that is given to you by this world. Because if you do, you're going to have to compromise this identity anyway. And well, a man can't serve two masters. Verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. Here's my favorite part, watch this. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Now, when I read this, I can't help but think about another story that takes place in Daniel chapter three around verses 17 and 18. And the story in Daniel three takes place during the exile. All right, so follow me here. Because Isaiah is writing about a period of time when the people of God will be taken into exile. And during that exile, under the, this king named Nebuchadnezzar in, in Babylon, you may be familiar with the story in Daniel chapter three, there is a story where Nebuchadnezzar builds this massive gold statue and he tells everybody in the town to bow down to it. You guys are familiar, the, it was a bunny. No, it wasn't a buddy. I'm kidding. Too much vegetables. She says, bow down to this golden statue. And these three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand up and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not, we're not going to bow down. And the king threatens and says, if you don't bow down to this statue of me, I'm going to throw you all in a fiery furnace. And listen to what the boys respond. I'm just going to read it so you have to turn there. The boys respond, well... Nebuchadnezzar, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, just on the off chance that he chooses to answer our prayers of saving us with not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, I cannot prove it but something tells me that these three boys had memorized Isaiah 43, 2, 
when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Why do I think that? Because their response was so rooted in something very specific. It's almost like someone had told them 100 years ago that God is gonna cover you through this specific situation and the moment the threat rolls off Nebuchadnezzar's lips, the first thing the boys go to is scripture. No, 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 no. That's already been taken care of. My God told me this was gonna happen 100 years ago and I've already got something for it. So why is this important? Because I think it underlines the necessity, the urgency for us to be learning and obeying his word right now because you don't know when you're going to need it. Now when I say need it, I don't mean like it's a Swiss army knife. I'm, ta- I'm talking about the concept of filling yourself, your mind, your heart with this exclusively. Not looking at this like it's just a good idea, but looking at this like it's a necessity for how you're going to live your life. That this thing right here is the only thing that informs the way that you live. You hide it in your heart, you make it your worldview, you fill, it in with your, you, you fill your mind with it to the point that the moment how you look at the world is questioned, the only thing that comes out is scripture. You don't quote a poem you heard or somebody's commentary on YouTube about this or what somebody that is a good friend of you told you they read in some book. The only thing that's flowing out of you on a regular basis is this because it's the only thing that's in you. And I, I, I just can't, and I've said this a couple times, I, uh, like, I'm not a prophet. I'm not telling you that things are going to get bad. All I'm telling you is that there is an urgency right now to take this seriously. You should. There is no reason for us to just say, well, I don't really, I'm not, I don't know where to start. Or Look, let go of all that stuff. It's not important for you to start thinking that way right now. So here's what I want you to do. If you're in that boat where you're like, look, I'm, uh, I'm nervous. I don't know where to start. Um, the best thing you could possibly do is download a Bible app. Doesn't matter which one. Just download any of them on your phone. And go to the little drop down that says Bible reading plan and just pick one and start it. You can do the year. You can do just the New Testament. You can pick just one book. But start a steady diet of just reading the word. And if you come across something you don't understand, you send me a message on Slack. Send me an email. And if I can't answer all of them, we got an entire team of pastoral candidates who are chomping at the bit to start dicing up the scripture with you. They would love that. I'll start disseminating it out. We've got a Bible channel on our Slack uh, uh, page, which is kind of our internal communications tool. If you're not on it, go see the people at the connections table and we'll get you hooked up. But the idea is that there are resources available to help you work through this and get it buried deep in here. And I wanna take off of you the intimidation factor that, oh, it's too big, it's, I don't know where to start. Let's just, look, no, none of us know where to start, okay? It's a, it's a tall drink of water for all of us, so let's just go ahead and humble ourselves and say, I don't, I don't know if Moses or Noah came first. <laughs> Like Micah, is that in like the New Testament or the Old Testament? Like who cares? It doesn't matter. Get into the word and start chewing on it. It is good for your soul. All right, let's keep going. 
In verses 8 through 15, God makes this bold demand to bring out all of the blind people of the world, the spiritually blind. And that includes Israel, because he's got a message for everybody. I want all of you to hear what God is about to say. He's going to declare something bold to the blind of the world. Verse 4, uh, Isaiah 43, we'll pick up in 16. It says, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse and army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I just want to pause for a second because some of y'all, your Pentecostals showing, and when you start reading that, God's doing a new thing. You, you read that as like, see, this is old stuff right here. He's doing some new stuff. He's giving me a download. He's talking about some things that y'all don't even know. So you just, let's, let's just sit and listen. Let me tell you something. The Lord does still speak today, but he does not contradict his word. All right, so when he's talking right here, behold, the Lord is doing a new thing. What is the new thing? The new thing is not some new job for you. That's not the interpretation of this text, okay? The interpretation of this text, the new thing, is that he's going to send a servant who will blot out your transgressions, who will wipe away your sins and will end the need for us to justify ourselves through animal sacrifice because he will make the ultimate sacrifice be the ultimate lamb and he will wash away the sins of the world and anyone who comes to him in faith will be saved. That's the new thing. Okay, so don't read this, don't pull this out and start putting it on your bumper sticker, the Lord is doing a new thing, right? I got me and uh, we, we're pregnant. Hey, the Lord is doing a new thing. That's not what this is. <laughs> Behold, I'm doing a new thing. It's Jesus, that's Jesus. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That's what he's gonna do. He's gonna make a way in the wilderness through Jesus. All right, the wild beasts, they're going to honor me. The jackals, the ostriches, that's weird, but okay. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You see, you, you've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honor me with your sacrifices. I've, I've not, uh, I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. Here's what you have brought to the table. You have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. That's what you brought to the table. What in sweet candy wasn't your good decisions, wasn't your wise investments. It was just sin and iniquity. That's what you brought to the table. But verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake, because I'm a, I'm a God of my word. And I said, I made a covenant to Abraham and I keep that covenant. You are my people. And so I'll do what it's necessary to keep you as my people. I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. All right, now this section 26 through 23, 
This is an offer of grace that he's extending. I will blot out your transgressions. You have brought nothing to me, so I'm gonna do all of the work. I will bring some things to you. Now, when he brings these things to his people, he anticipates that this offer of grace is gonna be too humiliating. So he offers them, well, if this grace is too humiliating for you, if, if me just wiping away your transgressions is too much, if you wanna argue your case, if you wanna say, you know, I'm not guilty based off of whatever, go ahead and argue your case, verse 26, put me in remembrance, let us argue together, set forth your case that you may be proved right, but just know your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. So this is God's declaration to the people. Everybody's blind. Everybody has transgressed his law. Even God's own people don't have an excuse, but I have good news. I'm gonna do a new thing. I'm gonna do all of the work that needs to be done. And the work is, I'm gonna blot out your transgressions and I'm gonna remember your sins no more. Here it is, folks. The gospel presentation in Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was even born. Jesus was in a backup plan. He was only the, he was, he was, he was the only ever plan. It was always only been Jesus. And we see it clearly everywhere if we know what we're looking for and the offer, what we're looking for is the offer for God to do the work on behalf of his people to wipe away their sins, to remove their transgressions. And this is the new thing God is declaring, that I will wipe your slate clean and offer you, the offer will extend to you, you can follow me. Now, you can either accept it or you can argue your case and reject it. Now, rejecting this offer always looks the same. Doesn't matter if we're talking 2,700 years ago, if we're talking today. The offer to argue your own righteousness, the offer to try and manipulate God so that what he says doesn't matter, it only matters what you say, it always works. So let me show you what he's talking about. Verse 44, go to uh, chapter 44, verse 6. You're gonna see that the offer that everyone always responds with, when God says, I'll wipe out your sins, the offer that everyone responds with is no thanks. I have my own God and it's this pretty little idol that I made. It has the power to save me, it's got the power to give me comfort, it's got the power to give me an identity and I'm just gonna keep on making sacrifices and it will keep on giving me what I want. Verse six, it says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I'm the first and the last. Besides me, there is no other God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There's no rock. I know not any. So mankind's response to God's offer is always the same. We don't need another God. I've already got one. And he looks like me and we're very happy living together. God's response is, that's no God. This thing that you made, it looks like you. You made it with the resources I gave you and it can't even tell the future. 
Isn't that interesting? That's what Isaiah uses as the argument for the difference between a God and a false God. Can your God tell the future? Can your God declare things? Does your God know what's gonna happen next? Because I do, says God Almighty. I know what's coming, and I've already made provision for my people hundreds of years in the future. There is no need for you to stress or form your own gods because I know what's coming, and all I require is for you to trust me. And then he gives us this unbelievably hilarious section of verses about the irony of serving something that you've made with your own hands. Go to verse 10. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. The people making the idols, they're human. How about you gather them all together and let them stand before me? Every one of them is gonna be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And here's why, because the ironsmith, see he takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm and he becomes hungry and his strength fails. So he drinks no water and, and he's faint. Guess who's not faint? God. The carpenter, the guy who makes idols out of wood, he stretches a line and marks it out with a pencil and he shapes it with the planes and marks it with a compass and he shapes it into the figure of a man, the beauty of a man to dwell in a house and he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. But see, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. But then he cuts that tree down and it becomes fuel. He takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he makes bread with some of it. But then the rest of the wood he takes and makes a God and worships it. He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. See, half of it he burns into the fire and the other half he eats meat, he roasts, and he's not satisfied either. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God, his idol and he falls down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. See, in ancient times, idols were a physical representation of something that humans created. All right, follow me. Idols were a physical representation of something that humans created. They were made of iron or wood, but the iron and the wood was borrowed from the earth. God gave the resources and they borrowed them. And these idols, they always demanded a sacrifice. You've got to give of yourself. But if you give of yourself and you sacrifice, the idol will give you a sense of comfort and safety, salvation or identity. Now that was ancient times. In modern times, idols are still a physical representation of something that humans have created. And they're still made with the borrowed materials of this world and they still demand sacrifice in exchange for comfort and salvation and identity. See, ancient idols looked like a card figure up on your mantle. Modern idols look like money, material items, food, sex, work, family, religion, 
They can look like politics, social agendas, worldviews. Really anything can become an idol as long as it's made with the resources he gave us and it reflects our image, not his, and it demands you sacrifice to it and in return will give you some sense of security and comfort. And so we look at the ancient Hebrew and we laugh at them being in exile and, and we laugh at the nations and the ancient people who would bow down and, 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 and worship these carved wooden things and then we stare at our phones and we drive our fancy cars and we eat our expensive food and we look our nose down on people who don't have the things that we have that give us the comfort we've sacrificed to. The problem is that just like the ancient idols had an effect on God's servant, the modern idols are having an effect on God's servants. And there's always a price to pay when you remake God into your own image. And the price is always the same. You become a blind servant. Israel was a blind servant and the church can be a blind servant. And so the call today is that there is no more time for idolatry. We can't keep reforming God into our own image so that we can get more people to come on Sunday morning and they won't be offended by this book. We can't reform God into an image that's more appealing or more uh, easily manipulated to us. And we have to stop giving human sacrifices to these idols of religion. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have a way of taking this beautiful thing called God's family and the church and turning it into a machine that eats human sacrifices. We have a way of creating a structure of a thing that starts off with good intentions, but ultimately ends up as just a thing that eats the sacrifice of people's time and it robs them of the joy of things like giving financially without strings attached, or giving of their time to go serve in some area of, of ministry of the church. I don't wanna go serve in the nursery because no one will ever see me again. I don't wanna give my time to that because the last time I did that, that became my entire identity and I never took a breath of air for 10 years. Those are all symptoms of the way that we take this good thing that God has given us and turn it into an idol that just justifies itself in continuing to go. It's all the same. It's all driven on sacrifices. And the promise is, man, if you come and do this, there'll be so much comfort for you because you're doing God's work. You're not doing God's work. You're doing some terrible leader's agenda. You're being sacrificed. There is a way to give of yourself in a joyful, love-filled way. And there is a way to give out of obligation and necessity. And if you're not careful, even within the structure of religion and in church, that line gets razor sharp and people have a hard time seeing the difference. Good, Loving, well-meaning people have a hard time seeing the difference. So it's time to call a generation to repentance to Jesus, not just 
membership to some idolatrous religious organization or some parachurch ministry. Let's go to, we're going to end here, Isaiah 44. I just want to read these two verses. I'm going to jump down to 22 and 24. This is the remainder. This is the reminder of how we finish today. Verse 22, 44, 22 says this. I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. So return to me because I've redeemed you. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all these things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, not with your help. So if you look at the entirety of what Isaiah is teaching here, he's saying there is a people in exile, but you're in exile because you need to learn some things that you don't understand right now. You're blind to things that you need to see. But that's not the end of the story. You will be brought out of that and brought home. And when you're brought home, there will be an offer to you. Once you clearly see the offer will be presented in front of you, you can have your sins washed away. The Lord of heaven will do all of the work on your behalf and wash you clean. And at that point, you can make a decision to either follow him and take him on his offer or reject his offer and keep serving the idols that you've been forging with your own bare hands. So the question for us today is, am I gonna keep reforming God in my own image or am I gonna take this offer that he gives me seriously? Am I gonna hear the word and like verse 22, repent and have my sins blotted out Or am I going to put my trust in this thing that hasn't really delivered on my behalf so far? So the response today, all of us kind of fall into two camps. There are some of you in here who have never accepted this offer. You've never heard the gospel presentation and I just presented it from the Old Testament. And so you have a responsibility today to respond to that. If you've never made a decision to say, all right, today's the day. I'm gonna follow Jesus today. I'm putting my faith in him and no longer in these idols that have, I have created or have been created for me. Or for some of you in here, you made that decision long ago when you're following Jesus, but you identify more not with a person who has never accepted the gospel presentation. You identify with somebody who is a servant, you follow Jesus, but you're starting to realize how blind you actually are. And so what we need today is for all of the people to cry out from wherever you are. From some of you, it will be, Lord, save me. But for some of you, it will be, Lord, open my eyes. But here's the good news. As the Lord opens your eyes, you will start understanding the necessity of this message to our world today. Because there's an entire world out there serving idols. And do you know what message they need to hear? It's this one. And do you know what mouth they need to hear it from? It's yours. And that's the beauty of this. Because it, it, it demands a response from the person who has got no faith in Jesus. It demands a response from somebody who is following Jesus but is realizing there's components of my life I'm blind to. But it also demands a response when you leave this place to go out and proclaim this message that hey, the God of the universe is offering you an identity and it's greater than any identity you could possibly imagine on this earth. And it comes at the cost of his son shedding his own blood to wash away your sins and give you a 
clean slate in life. You can start over today. That's an offer those idols can't promise. So it doesn't matter where you fall today, all of us have lots of important decisions to make. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.